I'd like to welcome you to the Jed Hughes Podcast. Each episode will feature a unique leader and will delve into the qualities that inspire greatness, galvanize organizations, and teach the next generation of aspiring leaders. Jed ran the process that resulted in the hiring of Pete Carroll, Jim Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Masai Uzuri. Now, according to Forbes, Jed is the most connected man in sports. Our guest today will be in the NHL Hall of Fame. He's bright, innovative, funny, and a game changer. Brian Burke was the captain of the Providence hockey team playing for Hall of Fame coach Lou Lamarillo. Upon graduation, he got his law degree at Harvard and began representing players. Decided to get into the hockey front office and then joined Gary Bettman in the NHL headquarters and helped Commissioner Bettman begin to globalize the NHL. He then would move on to five other franchises as their general manager and to two of the most storied franchises, the Toronto Maple Leafs and currently working as president of the Pittsburgh Penguins, working with Hall of Famer Mario Lemieux. Brian's personality and background as a broadcaster will resonate in the Pittsburgh community. He will not only bring an innovative approach, but he'll bring a fan-friendly touch. Our guest, Brian Burke. Welcome, friends. Our guest today, born in Providence, but grew up in Eden Prairie, the home of the legendary Bud Grant. Our guest revolutionized things in hockey, going from being an agent into the front office. Brian, let's talk a little bit about that early career, how you got into hockey, how you be, became an agent after getting your law degree from Harvard. I could give you the six-minute version. I'll give you the 60-second version. All right. We moved to Minnesota, uh, in Edina, Minnesota, not Eden Prairie. Sorry, oh, Jed. Edina. Okay. We moved, All we right. moved to Edina when I, and when I was 12, and I started playing hockey that next winter when I was 13. So I didn't start until I was, that's very late. If you don't start when you're five or six, there's no way you're going to ever play anywhere. So I worked my tail off, walked down as a freshman at Providence College, ended up playing four years captain. And so on. So when I got out of law school, I went but back. You played and I, for a Hall of Fame coach. I mean, you played. You played for Follett's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I, I played. I played for Lou Lamorello at Providence College, who's a hockey Hall of Famer, wonderful man, uh, was instrumental in my career. And when I graduated, I played. I signed with the Flyers, played in the American Hockey League, which is like the equivalent of AAA. And uh, then I went back. I wasn't any good, so I went back and got my law degree. I graduated in 1981 with my law degree from Harvard. And then when I first started practicing law, a couple guys that I worked with that I had represented asked me to represent them. So that's how I got into the business. I represented first two guys and then a third guy. And then I had a bunch of them. So they were all guys, clients of mine that played in the American League 
that retained me after I went back to Harvard. Interesting. So that was something you enjoyed, and it was unusual making that move. You were one of the first that became that were a lawyer and then got into the NHL. That was that wasn't the normal move. No, it wasn't. And at that time, uh, Dean Lombardi had just made the move over to San Jose from the Asian side. And a couple other guys did. Now a whole bunch of guys have done it, obviously, in all four sports of the major sports. Uh, a bunch of guys have, have gone from being on the Asian side in hockey and in basketball and baseball and, and gone back and worked in management. So it's not that unusual now, but it was unusual. And Pete Chiarelli, he was in the agent business briefly before becoming an agent, uh, Dean Lombardi. So there were a few guys. How do you go? Why go from the agent side? You've got these clients. Why go back into the front office? Why get into hockey operations? Well, there's, there's two reasons. One is the work gets repetitive. If you work for an agent, what I found as much as I enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed working in the agent business and representing players, but the work got repetitive. And, and and that's number one. But number two is way more important is there's no wins and losses in the agent business. Like you don't ever have a championship year. You don't ever get to put on a ring. You don't ever get to make trades. You're never directly impacted in the game, the winning and losing. And that's the part I missed was not being part of a winning and losing organization. So you get in early on with Vancouver then the Whalers, then you go up, end up in the NHL office working for Bettman. How do you, how does that happen? Well, I worked, I worked for Vancouver as an assistant GM for five years under the late great Pat Quinn. And then I went to Hartford as GM and I was only there for one year. I didn't get along with the owner, but I made a very significant trade uh, that kind of became, was really when I went back to interview for jobs, that number one trade in 93 when I traded for Chris Pronger and he had the sixth pick in the draft. I traded up to two and drafted Chris Pronger and that trade kind of set me up in terms of people saying this guy really knows what he's doing. So when I went back in 98 after the Olympics in Nagano, I went back. That's when I went back to on the team side Uh, in between from Hartford working for Gary Bettman for five years at the NHL office was a magnificent job. What a great leader, what great training to to work for a league that was kind of new. You know, we weren't new. We've been around for 75 or 80 years. But when Gary Bettman took over, it went from a mom and pop operation to a truly professional uh, top end uh, professional sports league. And that was all Gary Bettman. So I was very fortunate to spend those five years. So when you think about joining a team in an organization, how important is alignment with ownership, uh, with front, with the head coach, with if you're the president, with the general manager? Talk about alignment as you see it, as it relates to having success. Well, I, I think there's a few guiding principles that come to when you work in pro sports, and one of them is alignment. Your your ownership group has to share your vision as to how teams are put together, as to the proper time frame for putting them together. You got to remember there's 32 teams now. So you're mathematically due to win a Stanley cup every 32 years. And the owners don't like that math. So the fact is you've got to, when you talk to the owners, you've got to share their vision on how you put together a championship team and what the realistic time frame for doing that is. And if you don't have that alignment, you're dead. 
And that, I did not have that in a couple of places. That's why I've worked for six different teams. So if you don't have it, like we had it in Anaheim, won a championship. We had alignment there. But I think there's a couple other things, too, that I would say to anyone who's thinking of getting in this business. You've got to have a couple of pole stars, too. You've got to have a good moral compass in terms of how you deal with your players, how you deal with issues in the marketplace and what's right and what's wrong. I think that if you don't have those guiding principles like a Bill Polian, then you're probably going to struggle anyway. So you mentioned those would be alignment and your moral compass. Those are the two key foundations from your perspective. Yeah, I think your players have to know that when something happens, a player crosses the line or something is said or done, that you're going to do the right thing, that the team is going to do the right thing, and that you're going to do the right thing with the players involved. They have to know that. So if you don't have a moral compass and say, no, we're not going to tolerate this or that, we don't do that here. Uh, if you're not prepared to do that, you're going to have a short career anyway. So I think that alignment's critical, but I think you've got to have a, a real keen sense of right and wrong and how things have to be done properly in a certain way, or you're going to struggle anyhow. I mean, you had an unusual, after you won that championship in Anaheim, you were able to craft an agreement to get out of a contract you know, to join the legendary uh, franchise in Toronto. So how, how were you able to maneuver that? I, I maneuvered it because I got fired. From Anaheim? I mean, yeah, what happened with Anaheim was so the Samuelis owned the, the Ducks. Right. And we won the championship in 07, and then in 08 we lost in the first round. And I was going into the fourth year of my deal, and I had signed a four-year deal. And I told him, I said, I, I cannot come back after the fourth year. I was commuting to see my kids. Right, right, right. I, I went living, back living. every other weekend to see my kids in Anaheim and Vancouver. Yep. And it was killing me. And I said, look, I'm doing my four years and I'm going to walk. And they said, we don't want to wait. We don't want any short-term thinking. If you're not going to come back and re-enlist for, after the fourth year, we don't want you here. So that's when the break was made. And that's when I ended up with Toronto. So, I mean, you go into that franchise Talk about what the, what some of the, the challenges were that you inherited. In Toronto or in uh, Anaheim? In Toronto. Anaheim, you turned it into a champion. I mean, they were they, they had struggled forever, and you got them a Stanley Cup. Well, Toronto was, was, was cool because we had, we had good pieces. Um, the late, great Brian Murray drafted Corey Perry and Ryan Getzlaff, so I inherited them. We had some good pieces. We had a defenseman by the name or a forward by the name of Robbie Niedermeyer. Brother wanted to play with us, so we signed Scotty Niedermeyer. And we traded for Chris Pronger. We added uh, Tamu Solane. So we just we, we had a really good stretch of about 24 months there and won a championship. But uh, Toronto was different in the sense that there was a lot of money tied up in a lot of players, a lot of no-trade clauses. It just took a while to shovel out the stable, and I didn't get it done in time. I didn't win enough games, so they fired me. That's how it works. Well, no, no you then get an unusual, eventually end up with the president uh, at the Calgary Flames. So president of operations, which was kind of an unusual role at that time. Although in baseball today, they're using it so that you can't recruit the younger people to be a general manager. So uh, talk about how that position came about. and what. That well, I, the, the first time, and you correct me, Jed, if I'm wrong, but I think I got this right. The first guy I remember being a uh, president of basketball operations was Donnie Walsh. Yeah. 
That's and right. I think he was the first guy. I remember people were like, huh, president of hockey operations or president of football operations. That's different. But we've done it. John Davidson did it in Columbus and then in New York. Uh, we've done it in a couple places now in the NHL. Uh, I think it makes sense. I think it changes the hiring pool that you're uh, allowed to hire if you, in fact, have some gray hair in the room and have some seniority. So if you've got a president of hockey operations who's an experienced guy, you can hire a much younger GM and not worry about big mistakes. So I, I think the, the model makes sense. I think you'll see more teams do it. And um, a big part of what I do, too, is I try and do a lot of revenue support so that you're going and meeting with sweet holders and talking to sponsors and you're helping sell the product. So in between periods in Toronto, whereas I might be sitting there chewing tobacco and cursing my players, instead I'm doing sweet visits in between the first and second period, trying to support revenue. So that's a big part of what I intend to do here and have started to do in Pittsburgh. Obviously with the bubble, we weren't allowed to interact with our players or sponsors, but that'll go way up now. Well, you also have this incredible broadcasting background. I mean, you've got a personality that's unhinged at, 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 at times that would rival Barstool in terms of the things you do and the things you say. I mean, you're, uh, you, 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 you had your own platform, and you still do, in terms of how you've been able to articulate points of view and really sometimes be the naysayer. I think you've got to pick a style when you're in management, and you've got to pick a style when you're in the media. And my style was, I, I'm not going to say anything that I don't believe. I'm not going to agree with people I don't agree with. And it's kind of polarizing, but I think it's entertaining. And I'm just like, I'm going to say what I want until I get fired. And I really enjoyed broadcasting. It's a great field. And I was set, I was determined to stay there and keep doing the broadcasting, working for Rogers Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. I loved it. I loved the people I worked with. And I loved the people I worked for. And when you have that combination, that's a great job. No doubt. So how were they able to intrigue you to come down to Pittsburgh? Well, Pittsburgh Penguins are special. Like it's, uh, you know, Jed, you're a Pittsburgher. <laughs> um, it's a great city, great owners, great facilities, great sports. You know, it's a great sports town. Uh, the Penguins have been a, a model of consistency and excellence. So it was all those things. It's like, it's not just someone calling you saying, hey, would you like to go to work here? It's how would you like to go to work for the Pittsburgh Penguins? That's a very different question than most guys get asked. And I, I couldn't say no. So uh, what do you going forward? I mean, what do you see is that your core? We know obviously Crosby's hurt right now. But as you look to continue to build this into a consistent winner and, and more uh, Stanley Cup championships, what's what's your assessment? What needs to happen? Well, we've got we've got a core group of three elite players with Sid Crosby, who's just an amazing human being and hockey player. Evgeny Malkin, who's a top center for us, a, a star center for us, who's hurt right now. And then Chris Letang, who's a, an all-star defenseman, who's had some injury issues in a couple of off years. Then last year he had a really good year. So we told ownership in the interview process, we, we've got this group of three elite players. Let's see what we can do. We can keep together for one more run at this thing, and then we'll see what we can do. So that's still the goal is keep that group together. Two of them are hurt right now, so that's not good. But that's the goal is see what this group, because we've got some talented other players too. 
Jake Gensel, Brian Russ, uh, Brian Dumoulin. We've got good players in addition to these three stars. But our goal was let's see what we can do with this group for one more year, and then we'll see where it goes. At some point, uh, maybe we have to break the band up. Talk about how the NHL has uh, changed and adjusted through the times. You talked about when you first joined the NHL working for Gary, but it's gone through some reiterations with salary cap and so forth. When I went to work for teams, I think there were 21 teams. And then we quickly came, went to 23 and then 26, I think. I mean, like, like the number one thing I would say, when I worked for Gary Bettman, I went there in 1993. Uh, it was truly a mom and pop league. I remember working for the Vancouver Canucks. And I remember I had to go sign a, a Swedish defenseman named Robert Nordmark. And I went to, to Irene, the lady that ran our gift store, and I said, I need some cash. And she said, oh, I got lots. I can give you 400 bucks. <laughs> I'm like, $400. And you remember back then, this before cell phones were just getting going. We used fax machines. We used pagers. We were the first team to go to laptop scouting. But it was just a small-scale operation. I remember, I remember this vividly. The most you could get from an ATM was $200. Yeah, right. That's the maximum you could get from an, uh, an automated teller machine was $200. When I worked for the NHL, when I went there in 93, we had four VCRs. We could record four games. We couldn't record five. We couldn't record six. So, like, the biggest thing has been the, the growth of the game, the expansion of the game, the, the new markets, and, and the, the way the game is played. But the rule changes that have taken place. The game is faster and better than it's ever been. Talk about how analytics have been used and how, how much you use them. Of course, there are different schools of thoughts on, how, on the use of analytics. Well, my daughter, Katie, was uh, an MIT MBA student. And they had their, I think it was their second Sloan conference. So this is a Sloan analytics conference that Jessica Gelman and Daryl Morey started. Right. And so I was in the second one. And I said at the time, I think it was the fourth one by then, and they're at the uh, the convention center now, and there's 3,000 people there. But the second one I went to, there were about 300 people there, and it was in a, a boardroom at MIT. And um, I remember at the second or third, or third or fourth one, and I said, analytics are like a lamppost to a drunk, useful for illumination or useful for support, but not necessarily for illumination. And I said, you've got to, there's a, a big cautionary part of this business where you cannot use analytics exclusively, in my view, uh, to analyze players. So to me, analytics are critical. We rely on them. We use them. But it's our third tool, tool of evaluation. So it's like I was speaking to the group at MIT, and I said, okay, so you're, you're at a house and someone, a faucet breaks. What do you do? And all these millennials are staring at me like, what? I said, you grab a wrench, for God's sake. You grab a wrench. These guys didn't know what a wrench was. And so I'm like, the first thing we do is eyeballs. We watch the players play. We watch them in interact. We watch them. The higher level they can play at, the better. So best on best tournaments are great. So to watch a player in the World Junior Championships where the best Swedish kids who are that age group are playing the best Americans and the best Russians that's what we want. So we want evaluations, number one. Number two is we want to know everything about these players, at least in the high picks. 
want to know what they eat for breakfast, what kind of character they have. We want to know if they're competitive. We want to know if they're good teammates. We want to know everything about them. And are they a player that will be part of a championship team? And then third is analytics, but it's an important third step. It's not like, oh, well, we'll take a quick look. We spend a lot of time on analytics. We value analytics. And the person that doesn't does so at their peril. But I think if you think you can just sit behind a computer and pick 20 hockey players that will win you a championship, good luck. Well, talk about how it's used on the hockey side in terms of making uh, decisions with the roster and, and playing time and, and the like, in terms of how the wellness factor and analytics have been uh, incorporated. I think when you talk about analytics, you got to talk about a couple fields. One is how you evaluate players. Your use of analytics to use raw data mm-hmm. to tell you who's going to be a player and who's not. So that's one area is how do we best evaluate our group of player candidates for selection in the draft? So that's one. But number two is game planning, too. And we use analytics very extensively for game planning. So like, okay, we'll play, uh, say we're going to play the Pittsburgh Penguins and we're playing the Boston Bruins. Well, our analytics department is going to give them a game plan, one and a half to two pages long. Like, here's what we have to do. For example, this guy's really bad on face-offs in his own end on his left side. So we're going to try and make sure we get face-offs on the left side with that player. And so we're going to game plan for it. Who likes to score off the rush? Who does certain things? So we game plan for it. So that's an important thing. And then the third thing is, again, just circling back. What trend? What trends can we see? Are teams doing certain things that aren't necessarily game plan? But are we seeing, for example, some teams like to go north-south with great tempo right out of the gate. Other teams like to go D-to-D passes. So defenseman to defenseman passes. Go east-west, slow it down a little bit. Wait for things to open up. So there's there's trends too. We want to analyze trends and be ahead of the curve there and say we're not doing this well enough, and a bunch of other teams are. Let's adjust. The uh, the, the whole piece in terms of utilizing that analytics, as you described, as it relates to the the players' wellness and time on the ice. How do you how are you balancing how how do you balance that at this point? Well, that uh, ice time and situational ice time, we try and monitor that because we don't want to. We want to manage the workload of the players. That's a function of how much ice time they have and then what quality ice time it is. So, if you're playing tough minutes and you're playing against the other team's number one center, that's taxing ice time. That's difficult ice time, and so we want to keep an eye on that at all times. And that's done uh, minute to minute in game. And you might say, look, this guy's starting to drag a little bit early uh, early in the second period. Let's give him a shift off away from that big line and let's let him you know, stop dragging his tongue for a minute. And so they, they manage the, the player wellness, ice time fatigue, definitely monitored. But that's done on a minute-by-minute basis with heart monitors. And we cannot just tell how many minutes the guy played. We can tell how much of a workload he's carrying. When, when you think about today's coach, and the use of analytics uh, in, in some sports, you know, getting it translated so that it's understandable and useful and practical. Uh, from your standpoint, the coach, what type of coach does it take to be able to utilize analytics? Well, I think it takes, you have to learn the, the nomenclature 
and the vocabulary of working in pro sports. So it's not uncommon for us to have a young person that starts in the business talking about, you know, wins over replacement and this and that. And then the coach will say, I don't care about any of that. You make it more understandable for me. For instance, I'm a Luddite. I, I'm a real late bloomer. I believe in analytics, but someone's got to explain it to me. So we've devised between the coaching and what we demonstrate on tape, what the film guys put together, supporting analytics. It's a team effort. So a guy will say, look, we're giving up far too many chances five on five against this one line. And here's what we can see is they happen to be dumping the puck in and going to work. Maybe we can reverse that puck and slow it down a little bit. So a lot of it's player wellness. You're right. Ice time, fatigue, workload. But a lot of it's also, can we adjust in game? Can the analytics people show us something in game that we can adjust on the fly? And as a teaching method, use that proper language that the players understand that we understand and then work that into the video. So it's all right, guys. Here's what our analytics guys notice. We're not doing this. So here's an example of what we're not doing. Let's fix it. What do you see going forward the next three to five years with trends in the NHL or in international hockey? Well, I think the, the best the best trend that I see is diversity. Like the NHL, you know, you look at my team pictures, Jed, when I go back and play, it's almost exclusively older white guys on the management team. It's a bunch of white guys. And so you look at my team pictures going back from Providence College and you go back to, you know, the Springfield Indians in the 60s. Right. And it's all a bunch of white guys with the odd black guy. Uh, and some Aboriginal uh, people. Um, and so what I see is, number one, the most exciting thing for me is the improved and increased diversity among our players. So number one for me is I see a different group of athletes competing now, and that's very exciting for me and long overdue. As importantly, I see a big change in diversity in terms of the number of people that work for teams. The number of women and BIPOC people that have been put on staff over the last two to three years is staggering and it's breathtaking and it's wonderful. So that to me is the coolest thing that I see in my, you know, I look back on my changes when I've been involved. I look back and I say, what a great evolution and revolution has occurred in the composition of management teams around pro sports. Well, I mean, as you look at and back on your career, and highlight a couple of pieces that you're really proud of. What are the one or two things that you know, give you the most pride in terms of where you are in your career? Well, my, my teams, my teams have always been entertaining. Like, like I am determined to entertain people when when I play. So my teams have always been. They, they trade chances. They're entertaining to play against. They're physical. So I've always sold tickets. I'm proud of that. More importantly. I've, I've pushed the diversity plank through my late son, Brendan, and you can play. We've really pushed the diversity plank in terms of inclusion with the LGBTQ uh, plus community. We've driven that envelope hard over the last 10 years with great results. So I'm very proud of that. And then third, I'm very proud of being part of watching this league grow. And the, the diversity part of it is really exciting to me. Well, you've been a major fulcrum at it. I mean, you, you've been at it for a, a continual period of time and had successes on a number of different roles. 
So it was fun the first time we ever got to meet at the U.S. Air Club in Boston. And we were supposed to meet for about a half hour. And I think we met for three or four hours. So yeah, we did. It was the start of a good friendship and I appreciate all the help and, and uh, guidance you've given me through the years. So thank you. Well, it's the same. I, I, I value your advice greatly. It's been a great friendship. Well, thanks again. Appreciate you hopping on and, and being part of the Berg. Uh, hopefully some of the suggestions we talk about you take advantage of. And, and not only is it a championship place, it's a place you truly enjoy living. That's been fantastic. Thanks. So thanks for having me on, Jed.